In this first episode of the third season of Society of Strife, I thought we'd begin by looking at a story concerning climate change and its effects. Because it is Society of Strife, there has to be some conflict involved, and there will be the Cold War. Unlike most of the stories I tell, this one will not have a conclusion, as I expect each of you to reach your own conclusion at the end of the last episode of this story. This story is linked to a recent discussion that took place during COP26. So, before I get started on our main story, let's talk a little bit about COP26 and why it has been, in my opinion, a complete failure. First, let's go a little bit further back and talk about the history of COPs, or Conference of the Parties. Conference of the Parties does not exclusively refer to climate change conventions. Instead, it actually refers to the governing body of a convention, any convention that is, for example, the Chemical Weapons Convention. COP26 is the 26th iteration of the governing body of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC. To make it easy, you just need to understand the following. The use of COP in regards to the Climate Change Convention is as vague as the agreements we saw being made during COP26. With that out of the way, let's talk about the history of COPs. Not the history of the UNFCCC, mind you, because if you understood what I was saying earlier, both of them are the same thing. The history of COP is the history of the UNFCCC. That aside, the first COP meeting was held after the UNFCCC was established. So, first, let's look at the UNFCCC. The UNFCCC, or the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, established an international treaty to deal with human interference with the climate system. The treaty's objectives were, in part, to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere. It was signed by 154 states at the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development, or UNCED. The UNCED was held in Rio de Janeiro from 3rd to 14th June 1992. The treaty called for ongoing scientific research and regular meetings, negotiations, and future policy agreements designed to allow ecosystems to adapt naturally to climate change to ensure that food production is not threatened and to enable economic development to proceed in a sustainable manner. It went into force on 21st March 1994. Yes, they have had that long to deal with climate change. Basically, COP is a meeting between the signatories of the UNFCCC. A point of note, UNFCCC treaty is divided into three categories with each of the three categories featuring different objectives. The three categories are 1. Annex 1 countries. These are developed countries but also developed countries transitioning to democracy and market economies such as Eastern European countries that were at the time leaving the Soviet Union. The objectives include mitigation of climate change through the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. These countries have to report the progress they've made, either individually or jointly. 
Number two is Annex Two countries. These are developed countries from Annex One, with the notable difference being, unlike some of the countries in Annex One, all of the countries in Annex Two have to pay for the cost of developing countries' conversion to green economies. Now, I know that this concept has caused some controversy online, so I'll try explaining why some developed countries have to pay for developing countries. Developed countries have been emitting greenhouse gases since the 19th century, when most of them experienced the Industrial Revolution. In comparison, developing countries only started industrializing in the 1970s and 80s, with most of them still industrializing to this day. What this means is that developed countries are responsible for most of the climate change causing greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere today. This being SOS, I'll take it even further and say, we shouldn't forget that most of the industrialization experienced during the Industrial Revolution came at a significant cost to developing countries in terms of both manpower and natural resources. Did you know that there is a direct link between the slave trade and the Industrial Revolution? Simply put, the slave trade created an era of unprecedented wealth for the West because, you know, they didn't have to pay their captives. Anyway, that wealth was then used to fund the first industries that led to the Industrial Revolution. Besides, all the raw products that were produced by the enslaved people needed to be processed into finished products. That is why I think that the developed countries who led to the start of man-made climate change should pay for developing countries and their efforts at adapting to climate change and turning the economies green. The third category is, of course, developing countries. Developing countries only have to present their plans for the reduction of greenhouse gases to the UNFCCC Secretariat. In 1995, one year after the UNFCCC entered into force, Berlin hosted COP1. The reason for meeting was so delegates could discuss the UNFCCC treaty. Believe it or not, world leaders at the time believed the UNFCCC to be too limited in its scope especially because it was non-binding. The most ironic part about all that is that the same non-binding agreements that everyone knows are useless are still happening at COP26. Because of the UNFCCC's non-binding nature, the Berlin Mandate was adopted. On paper, the Berlin Mandate was great. If enacted, it would result in binding emissions targets and timetables being introduced for the first time ever. But, as we've come to expect, it would only come into force after a negotiation period of two years had concluded. To aid negotiations, the ad hoc group on the Berlin Mandate, or AGBM, was also established. Despite progression towards binding targets, developing countries were angry at the lack of immediate action the mandate presented, especially because even in 1995, developing countries were already experiencing climate change. I always find that a bit ironic, you know. Developed countries contribute the most toward climate change, but climate change affects 
developing countries more. In 1996, COP2 was held in Geneva, Switzerland. The main purpose of this meeting was to address developing countries' concerns. Towards this end, the Conference of the Parties endorsed a policy by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. That policy was described by said parties as, quote, the most comprehensive and authoritative assessment of the science of climate change, end quote. I won't go deeper into the policy, but I will look at whether it worked or not. If you know anything about climate, then you already know the answer. Additionally, the Geneva Ministerial Declaration was established. The declaration called for the creation of a legally binding protocol to be accelerated, which sounds fantastic, right? In fact, that is what we wanted from COP26, and that is exactly what we didn't get. The Geneva Ministerial Declaration was noted but not adopted. The third meeting of the Conference of the Parties was held in Kyoto, Japan in 1997. COP3 was arguably the most effective to date, with some of the policies enacted during COP3 being used to this day. The most successful part of COP3 was the adoption of the Kyoto Protocol. It targeted, specifically, developed countries. To this end, the Kyoto Protocol outlined the first-ever binding climate targets known as KELROS, or Quantified Emission Limitation and Reduction Objectives. KELROS place a maximum limit on Annex 1 countries emitting the six major greenhouse gases. Two flexibility mechanisms were also outlined. The first of these was a Joint Implementation Project, or JI. Joint implementation projects were important because they allowed Annex 1 countries to be part of an emissions reduction program in another Annex 1 country as an alternative to reducing domestic emissions. In my opinion, JIs allowed countries to try and escape their responsibilities, but either way, at least they were a step in the right direction, especially when you consider that it was 24 years ago. The second mechanism, known as the Clean Development Mechanism, or CDM, allowed Annex 1 countries to invest in a developing country's green infrastructure in place of reducing domestic emissions. Again, another shortcut, but still a positive step in the right direction. While the JI and CDM schemes were the first of their kind and also very impressive, countries, including the US, chose not to ratify the protocol. For the US, it was unhappy because the protocol did not require developing countries to reduce their emissions. There was also another problem with the protocol. It did not require China, then the world's second largest greenhouse gas emitter, to ratify the protocol because China was considered a developing country. While the Kyoto Protocol was adopted at COP3, its requirement of 55 signatures meant that it did not enter into force until 2004, when Russia finally signed. That means we wasted seven whole years that we could have used to alleviate pressures on our planet. But it is hardly surprising 
considering we let politicians take control of something that literally threatens our existence. Politicians are going to do what they do best, postpone problems until they are no longer in power, then it becomes somebody else's problem. The COP4 meeting was held in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in 1998. At COP4, the Buenos Aires Plan of Action was established to promote member state cooperation. The plan facilitated the transfer of technology and services to developing countries. Negotiations on the transfer would continue into COP5. However, something was accomplished. Deadlines for finalizing the outstanding details of the Kyoto Protocol were established and were to be resolved in the following year, or so the politicians said. At COP5 in Bonn in 1999, literally nothing was accomplished. Delegates left Bonn with a mandate to negotiate the finer details of the Kyoto Protocol, which was exactly what they were supposed to do at COP5. But, as I said, politicians will be politicians. According to a US delegation, while no new ideas were presented at COP5, the old ones were given a quote-unquote boost. Basically, more time wasting. COP6, held at The Hague in 2000, was described as a quote, make or break time for the planet, end quote. Yes, I know, that is exactly what COP26 was described as. COP6 provided an opportunity for disagreements regarding the flexibility mechanisms I mentioned earlier, the JI and CDM to be resolved. The problem was most countries could not agree on what was an acceptable emissions reduction mechanism. The European Union favored a smaller range of, of acceptable mechanisms such as wind and solar, while the G77's approach included a much wider range such as nuclear energy investment. Other issues involved carbon sinks and reforestation. Basically, some parties did not want reforestation to be classified as an emission reduction mechanism because that is all some countries would do. To avoid such a scenario, placing a limit on the amount of emissions reductions met through the mechanisms was also discussed. Unfortunately, these issues proved too much for COP6 and talks at The Hague broke down and were suspended. Eight months later, COP6 Part 2 took place and parties ruled in favor of widening flexibility mechanisms and placing no limit on emission reductions. COP7 was held in Marrakesh, Morocco in 2001. After COP6 Part 2, the detailed rules regarding the Kyoto Protocol were adopted and named the Marrakesh Accords. A Special Climate Change Fund, or SCCF, was also established to finance climate change adaptation and technology transfer projects. COP8 was held in New Delhi, India in 2008. At COP8, the Delhi Ministerial Declaration was adopted. It called for developed countries to transfer technology to developing countries. If you think that the Delhi Ministerial Declaration sounds a lot like the Buenos Aires Plan of Action, you are absolutely right. Most notably, the Kyoto Protocol was still in limbo at COP8. 
the Kyoto Protocol required at least 55 countries to sign, including those responsible for 55% of the developed world's 1990 carbon dioxide emissions. Problem was, the US and Australia had refused to sign, and Russia was a bit hesitant. Until Russia signed, the protocol was going to remain in limbo. I should point out that Australia is still a problem despite being the world's largest coal exporter. In fact, at COP26, Australia said that it was going to provide coal as long as there was still a demand for the stuff, which made me wonder why they would make such a decision considering the number of wildfires that they are now being forced to deal with every year. Again, this is what happens when we let politicians decide the fate of our existence. Cops should be attended by scientists and other intellectuals, not politicians. At COP9, which was held in Milan in 2003, new emissions reporting guidelines based on IPCC or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recommendations were adopted. The Special Climate Change Fund or SCCF and the Least Developed Countries Fund or LDCF were further developed. In my opinion, COP22 was arguably the best. Held in Buenos Aires in 2004, it featured some great steps towards the alleviation of climate change. First, the Buenos Aires Plan of Action was adopted to aid developing countries' adaptation to climate change. Another milestone was Russia, alongside Canada, formally ratified the Kyoto Protocol. Parties also began discussing post-Kyoto mechanisms, specifically how to allocate emission reduction obligations following 2012 when Kyoto's first commitment period was due to end. In COP11, held in Montreal from 28th November to 9th December 2005, things were on track. JI and CDM plans had been confirmed and the required number of signatures had been reached. So finally, at COP11, the Kyoto Protocol went into force. It was also in COP11 that the first meeting of the parties, or MOP, was held. The first MOP was a meeting between the developed countries who had agreed to the Kyoto Protocol. A new working group focusing on commitments post-2012 was also established. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll pick up right where we left off this week with COP12 all the way to COP26. This is most definitely the longest introduction to a story that I've ever done. If you like the stories on this show, get on patreon.com forward slash society of strife and leave a donation. It really helps. Also, do not forget to give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also subscribe to the show to get notified every time a new episode comes out. Until next time, goodbye.